I am very excited to announce that the Folly Coffee Hot Sauce Kickstarter has been successfully funded. We have created a new stretch goal with some awesome free rewards if we hit that stretch goal, as well as a brand new reward offering. Hint, Folly Coffee Barbecue Sauce. Check it out, follycoffee.com slash kickstarter. Don't wait. Hey, this is Rob. This is episode 58 of the Folly Coffee Podcast. Let's get it brewing. All right. I am here with Ryan Leonard. Um, I have personally known Ryan Leonard since I was in middle school years you, through my brother. You were friends with my brother growing up, and then we ended up wrestling together in high school. <laughs> yep. Uh, but Ryan is the co-founder of Revitalite, and I'm this is the part of the episode, third person, but you're right in front of me. But <laughs> Ryan's got a really cool story, not only just a founding Revitalite, but also in a previous business that he started and sold. And so it's a really cool story. Really excited to have you in here. Well, thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. Uh, shout out Ryan, too. Haven't seen him in a little while, but uh, he's got married awesome last weekend. Dude. Good. Congrats. Yeah. So let's start. Uh, in your first business because I love your first <laughs> business idea and the story this is it's like the classic entrepreneurial story of a great idea that works and things start taking off and then just all these unexpected challenges so let's let's start all the way back there but right before that at what point did you get the entrepreneurial bug is this something you've always known you wanted to be in, your, in business with yourself or what led you to the decision of starting that first business Man, I think it's always been just kind of in my blood. Like I, I've always been kind of a creative, creative and an idea guy. Like I've, I've always been forward looking. You know, how can things change? How can things be done better? Um, and I guess, for lack of a better term, I'm, I'm dumb enough to take the leap. <laughs> Wait, oh, so this is something I've been wanting to do in more episodes. Yes, to get, I want to do like a hook at the beginning to get people because I've realized with past episodes, people are like, oh, I didn't know what it was until they started talking about it. After it was founded. Good call. So let's talk about Revitalite. How many stores are you in right now with Revitalite? Revitalite, we're just over a thousand stores across the country at the moment. <laughs> and how would you describe what Revitalite is? And we, and we just crossed that that threshold. So if you've ever gone down the baby aisle uh, and bought Here, I'll a- I'll give you a product to hold. Here we go. <laughs> uh, if you've ever gone down the baby aisle and purchased a, uh, a Pedialyte uh, the next day after being super, super hungover or after a really tough workout and being really dehydrated- you kind of know that experience, right? It's out of your way. Um, 99 times out of 100, the person at the checkout counter is going to make some sort of joke uh, about you being hungover or ask you how your sick kid is doing. And if it's a product that you're buying on a regular basis because it's got awesome you know, hydration properties to it, it just gets old. Like You're just buying a product that's part of your everyday life. And every time the person makes you stupid for buying it or makes you feel stupid for buying it. So I kind of like looked out there and saw this huge adult market for this product that's in just about the worst distribution channel possible for the adult consumer and just saw this huge gray area open space that could be filled by just an adult brand by the exact same formula. The second I heard about your idea, just cause I think I saw you post about it on Facebook or something like way, <laughs> way early on. I was like, ah, damn, that makes a lot of sense. And you're like looking around going, how has nobody th- done this? Because the first time I learned about 
the you know the Pedialyte solution as like a hydration solution was in college in football in two a days you'd be yeah. sweating profusely to the point where they'd have to give you these disgusting electrolyte solutions and you like have to overly salt all your foods and you're still cramping up every day. I'm noticing teammates carrying around the bottles baby what I thought was like baby formula. Oh yeah, for sure. I'm like. Bro, what are, you, what are you doing? Like, why are you drinking baby formula? He's like, what are you talking about? This is basically just like Gatorade on steroids. And I was like, huh. And so from that moment on, everybody's drinking what I thought was baby formula. And so the second I saw that, I was like, this makes a lot of sense, especially when you think of, but so that's the hook. Well, and funny you bring that up is because we have a direct sales program too that we sell to, I think over 16 college and professional sports teams now directly. So, and, and so pallet volumes, like you've got that side sure. and you've got the hangover solution. So you identify these two adult markets that no one's being marketed to in that way. So there's the hook over thousand hook. stores at this <laughs> point. That's what the product is. So now, now people know what they're listening to. That, right. That's kind of something I'm going to start doing more <laughs> of. So let's go back. At what point did you decide to start your first business? So the first business was a frozen pizza company. Now, when you talk about CBG, there's like the two hardest industries consumer possible. Pa- consumer packaged consumer goods. Consumer packaged goods, but there's like the two hardest industries possible to start a business in. First one's frozen foods. Second one's beverage. Like I said before, I'm the only person dumb enough to actually do that <laughs> and do them both. So, Did you know that going in? Uh, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I thought the ideas made too much sense not to do them. So, um, so the frozen pizza company, there's a, I went to the University of Minnesota uh, and there's a, a restaurant there, Mesa Pizza. That's got crazy popular flavors, but they're all super funky. So you got like you know, mac and cheese. They've got a tortellini lasagna. They've got a chicken quesadilla pizza. They're all amazing. And the line just wraps around the block at 2 a.m. But I mean, like people outside of people in college love that kind of pizza too. It's just, it's fun to eat. It's different. It's not something you find a lot of other places. Um, so a buddy of mine and I, this was like a year out of college, were like, well, let's start a frozen pizza company that kind of mimics the idea of the restaurant version of Mesa. Um, and what, what were you doing fresh out of college? So I'm actually still working my day job right now too, but okay. we buy and sell, uh, we just buy and sell chemical raw materials, but essentially it's a logistics company, which actually aids a lot in, you know, having some of that knowledge of how to move things around and how to make, uh, how to work with co-packers, how to make some of that work. So it kind of lend a couple of different uh, skill sets to transfer into the entrepreneurial world mm. as well. Um, so Mesa Pizza, you've got so, these so weird pizza, flavors. You're a year out of college with your buddy. Let's let's the, do the, this. The inspiration. So it started uh, just to, both of us in our kitchen uh, making like basically making fresh pizza and putting the pasta toppings on it like Mesa did and just freezing them and then, you know, recooking them to see if it worked. And th- this was never going to be the production way. Mm. These pizzas were never ending up in a store. It was just seeing like, can you freeze all this stuff together and then recook it and does it taste good? And it, I mean, it tasted fine. It tasted pretty damn good. It's like you're uh, way ahead of the curve now. You're seeing frozen pizza now with COVID and everything that people are trying to figure a takeout solution. I just saw Ann Kim of all people yeah. do a frozen pizza. <laughs> like, if Chef Ann Kim's doing frozen pizza, that- <laughs> we were just a little bit ahead of the curve on that one. Um, so then it was time to be like, all right, so you got this idea. You've got um, pretty much the lineup of products that you want to make, but like, how are we going to get this to market? Because like manufacturing frozen pizza at scale is not, it's not an easy task. And without raising a ton of money, like there's no other way to do it besides working with the co-packers. So uh, my buddy and I spent, I don't know, three, four, five months like cold calling different frozen pizza manufacturers in the Midwest and just being like, hey, 
you know, do you guys have capacity? Are you able to work with pasta, uh, like frozen pasta? Is this something you can do? And I, I mean, we probably talked to 50 of them. Um, 49 of them definitely said no right away. And, <laughs> and one of them said maybe. So when you're going to co-packers and just to clarify for anyone listening, you might not know a co-packer is basically someone that manufactures a product or a good for you. When you're going to a co-packer, do you have like the business plan laid out? This is our strategy. This is our go-to-market strategy. This is our product fit. Or are you just trying to find someone that can make it? So we were right out of college. This one was literally just co- like cold calling the co-packers and kind of pitching them on the idea, on the flavors, on the concepts. Uh, you sign an NDA, but not really. For Revitalite, we did have more of a formal approach of like laying out the, the market segment and the opportunity and all that stuff. But this first one, no, we, we were really, <laughs> really flying by the seat of our pants. And we can get a little bit more into that later because uh, there's some pretty hilarious stuff that we did to try to make that business work. Um, so how did you ultimately find the co-packer? So we found this co-packer and shout out Okaboji, Iowa. They're down there called Landmark Products. Um, they are like Piccadilly pizza that you'd see in gas stations. Um, they're the power behind that. They do a lot of take and bake stuff, but they have capacity for frozen. Um, they'd never done a box frozen product, so they actually rented a boxing machine to make our product. Um, we used their in-house graphic designer to build out the brand, but like, yeah, they, they went through and bought like similar to how you drop frozen veggies onto a pizza. They found pasta that would work in that same way. And so, uh, Rewind, I don't think the idea, I, I fully baked this up. The idea was to do a mac and cheese frozen pizza, a spaghetti and uh, meatball frozen pizza, and a fettuccine <laughs> Alfredo frozen pizza. And these were kind of mimicking the, the Mesa flavor. So fast forward, we're like, can you guys do it? They're like, yeah, I think we can. And we got capacity. And, and they were the only outfit that was like, okay, if you're not doing like a million units per SKU, yeah. Uh, we don't want your business anyway. So they were willing to do some small batch stuff. They had some minimums, but they weren't like terrifying. Um, so essentially, they we finally got to a level of samples that that felt good, that felt like they'd work. Um, actually, tasted amazing, which which definitely helped in the process. Uh, and uh, sort of put a final stamp on the branding and and got a product together. So to put this in perspective, because I spent a lot of time in grocery at my Boston beer days, <laughs> yeah. picked the brains of a lot of grocery people. The frozen section, the reason it's so competitive is, and I'm talking at you at this point because you obviously know everything I'm about to say. Totally. But the, the frozen <laughs> section is a very limited space in any store. It's not growing in size. They can't just add another shelf. You have to add refrigeration units. It's expensive to maintain. And so that, that space stays very constricted versus like coffee. We're on the warm shelf. It's shelf stable. You don't have to worry about melting food safe, all that good stuff. And so it's not as competitive to find space on a shelf or add shelving or be able to be more flexible. So the reason frozen is so competitive because you have these massive companies that are in this space <laughs> and here you are. <laughs> I love this idea. We've got mac and cheese, spaghetti and meatballs, and fettuccine pizza. But hey, it was different. <laughs> exactly. That's what I love about it is it's like sometimes there are certain ideas that are so like stupid is not the word, but so no, it, different. It is, the, it is the word. But that's what I'm saying. Sure. is like what a stupid flavor of pizza, but yeah. people love it. <laughs> and like... The, your approach to it is brilliant that you're like it's and it kind of reflects in what happens with revitalite that it's like here's something people already are consuming regularly there's already a demand for it people clearly like this flavor mm -hmm. why isn't anyone doing it in this category right so you find the co-packer what's the next step after that uh so the next step was to figure out you know find some grocery stores to to start selling the product in um and we had like three or four stores. Our first store we got into was Jerry's uh, in Edina. Mm -hmm. 
and it, that was nice. They're a one off, and they're they're super receptive to local. They're super respective or uh, receptive to trying new things. Uh, so they threw another shelf right away, uh, and it started turning pretty well. Uh, the next thing we did was get into what, a what small, did you call it? What was the brand called? Pasta Pizza. We didn't get, <laughs> we didn't get real creative on the name. Right, I like it. <laughs> Just pasta with a Z. So. Um, Next step was, you know, finding a couple of other small groupings of stores, one-offs, two-offs, three-offs, uh, and just getting on the shelves. At that point, uh, my buddy and I were just, uh, like, going to the stores with invoices and stocking those shelves. We didn't have any distributors lined up, uh, really just trying to see if the business was going to work. And lo and behold, we had already produced, like, the minimum production, so we had a ton of it sitting in stock and, like, frozen cold storage. So the reason the frozen pizza business is absolutely a nightmare is that everything has to happen frozen, right? So you got frozen storage, the trucks have to have refrigerated units on them. Like nothing's easy about delivering these like cold chain delivery. It's, it's just a nightmare. Yeah. So, um, our next step we you know, we're sitting on frozen pizza has a long shelf life, but it still has a shelf life and we're sitting on a decent amount of inventory. So we went to a trade show down in Chicago and, and met a bunch of buyers. And uh, one of them that expressed some interest was Hy-Vee. Hy-Vee is another chain that's very receptive to new, to local. Um, great chain. They've got huge, I mean, you talk about limited frozen space. They do have limited frozen space, but it's much less limited than, I mean, they're just gigantic store footprints and they get so heavily shopped. So yeah. uh, we went down and met with the um, the buyer at Hy-Vee, us and our the broker that we started working with that, that taught us a ton about how all this stuff works. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the, in that meeting, the guy's like, yeah, we'll, we'll give this a try. But what we didn't really understand, we were super excited, you know, high-fiving when we got out the door. But what we didn't understand up front was when he said, we'll give this a try, it meant like your corporate approved to sell into our stores. Mm. So it's not one sale. Yeah. That, we, that didn't open up the, I don't know, 250, 300 doors that we thought it was going to. That was like, now you got to go around to the 250 to 300 stores that we have. That's why I say there's across no, the Midwest in small business. There's, not, there's never just good news. I said that the other day. I was like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I would like to just get good news and be happy about it and not immediately have it unveiled 20 new things that suck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, was it a positive? Yeah. And we, so the next step was like, my buddy and I were like, all right, we're going to have to take some weekends and, and go and hit some stores and home bases in Minneapolis. So if you know high V at all, like, you're looking at Iowa, Nebraska, Missouri, uh, a little bit of Kansas, uh, a little bit of Wisconsin, and we hit them all in a matter of like two months. We went back to the buyer like two months later, uh, and mind you, both of us still working the day job too, and we went back. We're like, all right, we've got this many yeses. It was like 175 out of like, <laughs> out of like 250. We had a whole like order spreadsheet that we sent through, and he punched it through, and, and we were off to the races with high V. <laughs> So 175 stores. When you're calling on these stores, are you setting up meetings ahead of time? No, you literally, it's you're just, just walking. Right. <laughs> we, we used a, a, like a mapping service that we'd find a cluster of stores and it'd give you like the optimal way to drive around. And we would drive around to all the stores, you know, hit 10, 15 in a given day. And you just walk in and be, who, who does find, frozen? Find the frozen manager, talk to him. I mean, the pitch got crazy repetitive after a while. So it'd be like, I mean, I could have been doing two other things at once yeah. and still say this pitch at the same time. But uh, yeah, go find the frozen manager, um, kind of tell him about the pricing, the value prop. You know, it's only three SKUs. So we're only looking for three facings. Can you find room? Uh, that was kind of the program. And then you go back to the, the head buyer, send it out to these 175 stores. 
I, I have a guess about this, but when it gets sent to all the stores, did it immediately get placed on into the frozen section at each store? Some. Yeah, and that was but. one of the... <laughs> it did find its way decently. Um, I, one detail I forgot to include is that Yes did put us in... Um, we didn't use uh, distribution. We used their actual corporate warehouse. Mm-hmm. So that did... Um, that was a benefit because a lot of it did go out to the shelves it was supposed to right away. But then you got merchandising. So uh, that would basically be on the frozen buyers once it's sold out to rebuy it. And those guys have quite a few things going on to keep track of and a lot yeah. bigger brands than us. So that was definitely an issue that we ran into. Your first thought was exactly right. So yeah, we did find the right shelf a lot of times, but the rebuy rate was, the sell-through was really good, but the rebuy rate, if we weren't sitting and calling them and talking to them, you know, stores that sold out, uh, it didn't, you know, it was hard to get it back into those stores. Um, Cause especially if you leave three facings open of product that sold out, Nestle's going to grab those in two seconds flat. I mean, they're like, oh, sweet. Three more facings. Put pepperoni in there. Like, all right. (laughs) Yeah, because I'm trying to wrap my head around that number of stores and trying to get orders placed. Because right now we have stores like that where we just email them and go, hey, it's order day. Let me know if you need some more. But with 175 stores, it'd be impossible to manage. Yeah. So what happens after this? So at this point, you presumably have some pretty solid volume going through it's starting to pick up it's getting off the ground what's the next steps after high v next steps after high v and uh this was like our the chain we wanted to get in the entire time it was lunds and byerly so mm-hmm. um we kind of used the success story from high v and the and the uh a little bit of the velocity and talked to, you know the things that were working really well to go and tell that to lunds and byerly's and also kowalski's uh, and again, pitching the local, pitching the exciting and new, like we're not another, um, not another just basic pepperoni pizza kind of thing. Uh, and I th- it took two or three meetings with those guys and a, a cycle of, of buying through um, to finally get them to say yes. They were a little bit tougher to get into, but um, a great chain. I mean, those guys sell a ton of frozen pizza and we did really well on that chain. And explain to me what a pitch meeting would be like, because for me, I can... Brew some coffee at home, put it in a Stanley thermos. I joke that I've got this, like, this This is a newer Stanley thermos that's sitting over here, but I've got this one that's, like, legit from the 80s that my parents had, and I just took out of their closet. And <laughs> yeah. I was like, Folly was built out of this 1980s Stanley thermos. So I'd brew some coffee at home, so I'd have samples in a meeting to be able to tell the story, this is our coffee, and then also get them to taste it in the meeting. And then they go, oh, this is different. Everything you're saying is now validated, hopefully. Yeah. And how do you do this with frozen pizza? <laughs> Okay, so because <laughs> you can't really, you can't just make it at home and bring it in, and because it just it wouldn't be hot and if, or fresh and no, exactly. So uh, you bringing that up made me remember a really funny story about that trade show um, where we met the Hy-Vee buyer, and then we'll get back to that. So the way that we set up for that trade show, and this is just another logistical nightmare, was uh, we had to get our product down to. It was in Chicago, down to Chicago, and still have it be frozen. So my buddy and I built a, like, we took, we bought insulation, like insulated walls at Home Depot, and, like, tape, duct taped it all together into basically a box freezer in the back of his flatbed, uh, like in the back of his truck, and put a bunch of dry ice in there and about 150 frozen pizzas. And they stayed frozen the entire... There was even some dry ice left when we got to Chicago. So maybe we should be engineers too. <laughs> it was amazing. Well, so sorry for the interje- no, interjection there. That, but it was that like, brings up another good point. So it's being made in Okoboji, Iowa, which is three hours away from here, yep. in, um, just outside Minneapolis. 
Are you going down to pick it up? Are they delivering it to you? How are you getting the pizzas? Where are they being stored? Or <laughs> Well, and this is where the skill set from the day job came in handy. <laughs> the logistics of this. It's a nightmare. Uh, this is where the... Um, where the skill set from the day job came in handy because we know how to book trucks. So mm. we'd book a truck um, with the refrigerated unit on it, which of course costs extra. Uh, and it would take the pizza frozen from Okaboji up to the warehouse in Minneapolis that we used for uh, for cold storage. Okay. Triangle Warehouse, they're in Northeast. Awesome outfit. They were super supportive. Um, but yeah, so we'd go in there and pick the pizzas up and load them into this back of this like literally duct tape like insulation wall cooler. Oh, so and, that's and then what you started to all use. the way down to Chicago. And then we had, yeah, we had to use it for a little bit for deliveries as well. So it, it worked. It wasn't pretty. We didn't have any branding on the outside. <laughs> <laughs> You're not pumping the brand out on the side of that. We didn't want people to see like our, our brand logo and then just a bunch of duct tape on like some, some insulated walls. <laughs> <laughs> and this is, this is like when I pull up into the back of any grocery store, depending on which vehicle I'm driving that day, just like in the RAV4 next to like these massive freighters. <laughs> and oh yeah. Like, hey, you can't park here. I was like, I'm delivering. They're like, Oh, I guess you technically can park here. All right. Yes, you have to. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so you get into Lunds and Byerly's. Oh, yeah. So back to the the other logistical nightmares. Yeah, meeting sampling. with these buyers, yeah, right? Yeah, trying so, to sample someone in a buying meeting. So you're never going to bring pizzas to a meeting already cooked, right? You said they're not fresh. We're not. So we had this big husky like cooler on wheels. Like I mean, it was the thing was like six feet across and pretty tall. Uh, so we'd bring a frozen pizza or a like a pizza oven. We'd bring frozen pizzas. We'd bring all the, uh, you know, cutting utensils, all that stuff, and all our cell sheets and go in and, you know, sit down with the buyer, plug the, <laughs> plug the pizza oven in and just start making frozen pizza sitting in there in the meeting. So, <laughs> so you're sitting there like doing the sales pitch going, oh, all right, okay, three minutes left on the pizza. I got to sell for three more minutes. <laughs> and then you're sitting there talking and making the pitch and still trying to cut pizza at the same time and... I still like cannot believe any of that stuff actually happened. <laughs> and are you sampling in stores as well? Yeah, we did a bunch of in-store samplings. Did you do the, quite did, a few? Did you do those yourself, or did you did you kind of uh, leave that up to the uh, the stores that you worked with on their team? So with Kowalski's and London Byerly's, since they were in our backyard, we did all those ourselves. Um, had to save on costs. They're not cheap yeah. to set those up. No. Uh, and then with the Hy-Vee chain, we did find some uh, some third-party companies that we took advantage of for a bit. And so um, you had little pizza ovens that you could. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, I mean, a lot of times, thankfully, the stores would have an oven too. Uh, for London buyers, we brought ours, um, but the Hy-Vee chain, most of them had uh, <laughs> had them sitting in the back, so we didn't have to like send a bunch of ovens out to to all these stores. Thankfully, Jeez. so you get in, <clears throat> you get in London buyers, get into Kowalski's as well. Yep, uh, and, both. Yep, both those. And how how long of a time period are we talking about from a year out of college to this point where now you're in uh, these high V's? You've visited 175 of them. You're in London Byerly's. You're in Kowalski's. This was like a two year time frame, probably. Oh, okay, um, all while working your day jobs. Yeah, <laughs> all in all, the whole the whole pizza venture took like three and a half to four years. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I think that was London Byerly's is probably like halfway through. You ultimately end up selling the business. What led to that? Uh, so really, really funny story. One of the companies that we called to make uh, the pizza for us like early on was Bernatello's because they're in Minnesota and they, they make awesome pizza, like lots of matzah is one of their, one of their oh, yeah. brands and they're incredibly good. Uh, so, you know, got time when Grant and I were kind of like, oh, Grant's ever since the buddy of mine that I started the, uh, the company with, but we're like, okay, so we're doing pretty well. We've got pretty good turns, um, but next step is either 
we're gonna have to raise a bunch of money and actually do some marketing and uh, and do some things that actually operate at scale and not at like you know what we're doing right now, um, or we're gonna have to find a partner. So um, I had had a conversation with this uh, with the owner of Bernatello's early early on, Dave Ramsey, awesome guy, and he just loved the idea. And he's a guy that you could sit and talk to all day long. He's just a he's got a cool history. He's one of the guy, even though he owns the company, like. He'll get in a truck and drive an order if there's a driver that's homesick. Mm-hmm. Or I mean, he's that guy, right? He's in the warehouse. He's doing everything. Um, but I call him up and I just we talked a little bit more. We had a couple opportunities with some bigger chains. Uh, there was a region of really random. There was a region of Costco that wanted to bring in uh, our pizzas in the northwest uh, because the buyer for that region was home visiting family. Uh, <laughs> was home visiting family. And happened to walk into a London Barley's when I think Grant was doing some sampling and loved the product. And her, uh, she was with her niece or nephew, and niece or nephew absolutely loved the product too. So she's like, okay, we got to do something with this. So uh, so we're talking to Dave Ramsey. Like, There's a lot of opportunities out here, and people want our pizza, but we're like not in a position really to capitalize on some of these opportunities. Um, and I guess it was one of those, like we had probably 10 conversations with him just about the inner workings of the business and the recipe. And we, you know, he, he made a bunch of test batches on it, but um, it was kind of a one thing led to another. And uh, he ended up buying out the, uh, the company for the recipes. And uh, like I say, he, he kind of gave us an opportunity to die another day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's the difficulty of having a unique product is there's so many food bev businesses that if you have a simple product, it's easy to grow because you just find a new larger co-packer and you can move forward and it's easy. But when you have something where you're going to co-packers saying, can you put cooked and then frozen fresh pasta on these pizzas, most of them are just say it's not worth our time. Right. So like unless you've got these like orders or you have the funds to say, we're going to throw money at you until you do it. It's just like every small business seems to get in this position when you're making food is like, how do we get to that next step? Yep. So you sell the business. Was your mindset immediately, I want to start something new or were you burnt out at this point? I mean, selling the business was almost like, uh, it was exciting. Don't get me wrong, but it's almost like breaking up with a girlfriend, right? You're like, oh, I had all this like time and energy going into this one entity, you know, and, and we loved it. It was super exciting. Like it was something we grew from the bottom up and, um, yeah, for like, like several months, it was like something was missing. Um, and I, I, after, after that was done, I was like, I will do something again. It won't be in CPG. Uh, <laughs> like 100% will not be just because of all the shit that we went through to try to get like to that point. Yeah. Um, obviously, that didn't work out really well. At least, <laughs> at least you dropped well, the but, frozen part. <laughs> yeah, at least you dropped the frozen part. But um, but yeah, no, I mean, I definitely wanted to get back into something again right away. It was, it was a weird feeling to have that kind of out of my life at that point. How long was it until the idea for Revitalite came and how did that idea come to you? All right. So it was end of 2015, early 2016 that we sold the pizza business. And I think we incorporated Revitalite in early 2017. So it was fairly, it was fairly quickly after. Um, I think the first time it sort of came to me was, uh, it was probably right after, uh, right after we ended up selling the frozen pizza business. But I, I want to get in mindset when okay. you come up with the idea. Cause this, this is something that I think I've noticed about people who start businesses is this, there's seems to be two types of people when it comes to this is people that have the mindset of I'm 
actively looking for a new idea and I've got this mindset of everything I'm looking at is there an idea here is there an idea or kind of what happened to me where it's like I love coffee this is so cool I didn't know this whole world existed this is awesome and then all of a sudden one day I go oh this is a really intriguing trend of the high end of coffee there might be a business here yeah which one would you place yourself in well okay so I was actually in both okay there was part of me that's actually a really good question so there was part of me that was like actively like trying to look and even force some things into like a new business. So I, one of the ideas we came across was grill covers because they in general suck. Like they're impossible to work with. They die after like a year. What covers? Like grill covers. Grill. Like a cover for your grill. Yeah. Like we were <laughs> literally throwing the kitchen sink at like what could we start now? Yeah. Um, but yeah, great. Just random stuff. But then the other when Revitalite happened, it actually was more so like how you um how you came up with folly. So it was more like I was in the store buying a PDA, like, like I've done a lot of times and just walking out and be like, God, that was so annoying. And I was like, yeah, that was really annoying. That happens all the time. And then the light bulb kind of went off. Like this product shouldn't be only sold in the baby aisle. It just shouldn't be. There's no reason it should be. <laughs> um, and that's, so it, it was like a, an exact combination of the two. And I actually ignored the idea for, like three, four months after I originally thought of it. Like I, it would pop in my head from time to time, but I was just like, I don't want to do, I don't want to like do a CPG thing again. Like that, the time and energy that it took was insane um, to do the pizza thing. And I knew if we're, if we're going to do beverage, it wouldn't be any different. Um, but I guess it was just nagging and nagging. And like, I, I couldn't get away from it uh, just because it made so much sense, I think. And once it finally nags at you enough to start this idea, what what are the first steps that you start to take? Because I think probably the biggest critique of it would be like, well, your product exists. It's Pedialyte. Why, yeah. why would you start a business if there's something on the market that's like really, really similar to what you're doing? Yeah, for sure. So the mindset was, and I think immediately the thought was like, let's go back to the frozen pizza playbook and let's let's like fly through it. Like what worked, what didn't, what did we learn from that? And let's make sure we don't make the same mistakes twice. Like, cause why would you do that? That wouldn't make any sense. Then all, all the previous venture was for not if you didn't learn something going forward. So, um, the couple of key things that I wanted to tackle in launching Revitalite was one, I wanted there to be zero communication gap, uh, between the brand and the consumer. So what I mean by that is like when it went onto the shelf, I wanted you to see it on the shelf in a liquor store or a convenience store or some other store where adults actually shop and see it and go, Oh, that's a product that's in that category. That's an adult version of the pediatric products. That's got the same qualities to it. Perfect. I can buy it here. Boom. Done. Um, and to me, that was the most important thing because on the frozen pizza side, kids that weren't in college didn't immediately understand what our pizza was. Uh, we'd be doing demos and people would be like, oh, is the, is the crust made out of pasta? And we're like, no, no, it's just toppings. And um so I think, you know, learning through doing some of those demos and samplings and being really hands-on, we learned how consumers don't immediately understand what you understand. Uh, and to close that gap without having a lot of marketing dollars is damn near impossible if you don't do it uh, in a very certain way. So that was the first mindset. The second mindset was just like, you know, making sure, first of all, that because that stores actually want this product. Like with the pizza one, we literally just made the product and went and sold it to stores. Yeah. Um, with Revitalite, we went to 20, 30 liquor stores with like some fake sell sheets essentially. And just were like, uh, you know, do you guys, is this something that you would sell? And that's uh, such a, such a, such a smart move. I cannot emphasize that enough. Too many people will do the, it is 
painstaking to build a brand around an idea and then figure out you weren't completely right. Yeah. And it's almost harder to figure out that you weren't wrong, but you weren't completely right. And then you have to completely redo everything for a small tweak and to have customers ahead of time. I've said this before, but what that also does is when you're asking these people ahead of time, would you buy this? You're basically pre-selling it because if they say, yeah, if you made it, I would buy it. And yeah. You go, hey, can I stay in contact with you? And also, can I pick your brain about this? Because these people know more about what their customers buy than you do. Right. I don't care how much experience you have. They're the ones in the stores that are bringing people up. They're the ones that are bringing in product. So when you go to 30 stores and be like, would you buy this? You can build and around an idea that like you've basically pre-sold. Yep. And so even if they haven't committed that, yes, the second it's in, I'll bring in a case, whatever, you still have to do pricing and all that fun stuff Mm -hmm. that you know the idea is there and that can help sharpen an idea before you start doing label design, before you start branding and marketing. And that's something like that I did with Folly that looking back, I think was probably one of the reasons we were able to start quickly is because I went to the grocery stores and was like, this is what I think the packaging is going to look like. What do you think? And I got really good feedback of small, small tweaks that are the small things that people point out consistently. Yeah. And so, so you're going out with the, I like the, this fake sell sheet idea too. <laughs> yeah. And it was, it wasn't like, a, it was just like ahead of the time. Cause we didn't have our finished product on there. We didn't have our finished look. It was more of just like a, we had some like digital mock-ups of yeah. what the product was maybe going to look like. Now, when and you were going to them with these sell sheets, were you saying this is our product or were you saying this is what it might be? It was very perspective. It was like, it was like, would, you know, we're thinking about doing this. Is this something you'd okay. be interested in carrying? So, so like, no, we didn't have the stores. <laughs> like we didn't take POs and be like, all right, your lead time's like 16 weeks. We'll, yeah. we'll be back. Okay. <laughs> so it wasn't really a fake sell sheet. It was just like a concept. It was just like a concept. That's yeah. so smart. And just kind of walked through it with them and um, had some good conversations with, yeah. with people and also wanted to figure out, cause we had to forecast this thing with absolutely no information uh so figure out like how their na section actually turns and you know what can we expect to see uh in terms of sell through so just trying to learn some basic things about how to run a beverage company because it's a whole different animal and so you're going around getting the approval or just yeah this is a good idea that we'd be interested in this type of product where do you go from there uh so from there it was we had to figure out like once again how to make the product and but this one unfortunately had like one option uh you know, with the pizza one, we had, you know, 40, 50 different manufacturers we could call on and try to find one. And we had a lot of chances at life here. And uh, with this one, um, because of the strict philosophy of not going to market with a product that didn't look like its category, um, there's one manufacturer out there that makes the white label like store brand product that you'd buy at like a CVS or Target. So the the generic or the knockoff of, of, of Pedialyte. And that was kind of our only option to get this product produced so we could look like the category standard. Um, so we, again, this was a cold call once and uh, to their uh, marketing team, but I basically had an early on conversation with them and um, it basically said like, here's this, this huge existing marketplace out there. And this was a, a year or two before um, all those articles came out about Pedialyte when it like really caught fire. So it was like a, just before that, that whole thing actually hit. But I was mm-hmm. like, you guys are aware that there's this like big adult market out there for the category, I'm sure, right? And they're like, yeah, of course. Um, we, we watch it actively. We see it all the time. Um, and I was like, I know you're making all of the store brand stuff. I was like, have you ever thought about making one for you know a brand for someone who's going to go and get into stores that aren't chain stores because they only make them for large national chains? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were like, well, no, not really. Um, they're like, we're kind of set up to do that. But we're not really set up to like 
do it ourselves. And I was like, well, I got an idea, you know, nice to meet you. So, um, but the, the difference between the way you approach them and the way you approach the frozen pizza, pizza co-packers is like looking at it from the co-packers side, you've got two guys that come up, we want to make a macaroni frozen pizza. And you're like, okay, who's buying it? And you're like, well, we hope these people, right. Right. Oh, so are those sales? Well, no, but we could totally see it being in there versus we've talked to 30 liquor stores already. We've heard resounding yes that this product should exist and now we're looking for somebody to fill that gap and so the value add to them is like oh we we have the opportunity to fill this gap in the market versus like all right hopefully these two guys can go out and sell this yeah right we really put together like a package of value when we pitched them on trying to be our manufacturing partner like you said i mean it wasn't a it wasn't a hopeful at that point it was like you know what are your minimums and can we can we put together a brand and, and sort of do this and uh, I remember the first time I actually met them in person. It was actually two years after we started Revitalite that I finally got to go meet them in person. Um, and all this was just like over the phone and just like, you know, email and whatnot. Um, I met the the gal that originally took my first call. So the one that took the cold call. And she was like, she was like, I, I mean, I hated the fact that I had to talk to you because my immediate reaction after we hung up was, oh shit, we're going to have to do this. Like this idea is actually a good idea. And this actually makes a lot of sense. Um, and I was like, I love that. That's so cool that, that you, cause she gave us, she's the only reason that we got to this point is she gave us the initial opportunity to take what they had created in a, in a product and put her own brand in it and work together to create kind of a marketplace for it. And explain to me the difference, uh, between, you know, most people when they're doing sports or sweating a lot or hungover they <laughs> yeah. are drinking Gatorade. Yeah. So what would be the big difference between what you're doing and a Gatorade? Yeah. So, I mean, Gatorade is still a, a halfway decent product for sports. I mean, it, <laughs> I, I, credit where credit's due. I mean, if you're going to sweat and work out really, really hard for like over an hour and a half, all the sugar that they put in Gatorade's good for your body. And that's what it was originally made for. What Gatorade's done a really good job of is making their thirst quencher of a product. If you look at their marketing stuff, nothing talks about hydration. It's all about thirst quencher. Um, and what they've done a really good job is making that sound synonymous with hydration. Mm. Um, and people just take that as, as Bible and go forward. So, um, what the big difference between our product and their product is, well, they're kind of full of these quick carbs and a little bit of electrolytes, uh, to fuel you while you're in activity. Our product's great for recovery and rehydration. So it's only purpose is to get water back into your system as quickly as possible. And it's really the next fastest way path to rehydration outside of like an IV, um, so that's why it works really well for hangovers because I don't know about you, but I rarely work out for an hour and a half when I'm super hungover. <laughs> so uh, when, when you say this might be a stupid question, but electrolytes is a term that's used all the time. But what exactly is an electrolyte that's different hydration than if I were to just have a glass of water? So this is a blend of like salt, potassium, zinc, uh, and chloride, which is, and it's balanced with a certain level of sugar that really takes your cells and makes them pull water into your system. Mm. So it's really like what they do is they just hold water's hand and get them back into your body quickly. Uh, that makes so a lot of sense. It supercharges I've been, water. I've been hearing so much about zinc and potassium supplements of, as a way of like staying healthy during COVID. That makes a lot of sense that it would help a lot in hydration because I think hydration is something that a lot of people just don't think about when they're like, I don't feel great all the time. Yeah. And you're like, well, keeps your body how, running. How much water you drink? And they're like, I don't know. And you're like, that's most of the time it <laughs> yeah you can't function at full capacity if you're not fully hydrated and feeling good well and personally the thing i loved about i was drinking i was pounding revitalite during <laughs> that uh 130 mile running week i had to do for the stupid promotion i did that was stupid and awesome yeah but yep. it was definitely 
not a smart thing to do again. But uh, the thing is, like, <laughs> the I, things, I, the I things could, we'll do for our brand. I couldn't drink enough water or Gatorade. The sheer volume of it is, I, I had to run like eighteen and a half miles a day, and I'm not a runner, so it took a lot of time, and I just the amount of water or Gatorade you'd have to drink to stay hydrated, it would be in my stomach and I'd feel uncomfortable. And so like day three, I was like, Oh, I got to go pick. I basically went up and picked like five bottles of Revitalite at my local liquor store at top 10 and started pounding that. And immediately the cramping, like it was not an issue for the rest of the week. Yeah. And I, th- this sounds like a, some sort of endorsement, but it's real because it just requires way less volume to get the same thing that you're looking for is that the hydration, like in a faster way. And I just was not cramping the rest of the week. And that was a game changer. Cause like day two was awful. I was just <laughs> like the last mile was basically on one leg and day two, I'm going, I don't know if I can finish this thing. And that was a big changing moment in that week that allowed me to not cramp uh, and not have like water sloshing around in my stomach. Right. So you're able to get the co-packer on board. I assume a pretty good size minimum quantity order. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it was ten thousand bottles. So, so, you, so you, that's enough to sell. So yeah. you have ten thousand bottles that you now have to go out and sell. What are your first steps in going out to sell? So we weren't going to go stock shelves at this point. At this point, we're going to find. Uh, we wanted to go through um, through distribution. So other companies that really knew the market very well, a lot better than we did. Um, and sort of get together with them and put together a plan how we're going to roll this out to market. You know, where can this live in the store? Uh, what kind of point of sale products do we need to get out there? Um, we wanted, you know, a couple of different options, a larger format where someone could stack the product up and sell several cases at once. Uh, we also wanted a smaller format that could sit on a shelf top. So we kind of created both of those solutions that we are, uh, eventually went to market with. But yeah, finding a, distribu- a distributor to help move these, you know, original 10,000 bottles was was step one. Um, and we, you know, the other thing that we learned with the Rosen Pizza Company was, you know, less is more when you're first starting out. So we only launched um, mixed fruit was our first flavor. And we sold only one flavor for six months on the market. Um, that was it. So we launched grape six months after we launched mixed fruit. And um, just because we wanted to make sure that we weren't, you know, being dumb, make sure that it's going to sell uh, before we load up on inventory of a couple different flavors. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was our big pitch when we went out to stores and two distributors were like, this is just a one skew product. Let's give it a try. It's got a two year shelf life. Like it's just a, it's not a hard product to sell. The things it, that get me excited was when I hear <laughs> co-packer distributor and two year shelf yeah. life. I'm like, Oh, if you can find a product that works with those things in place, life is so much easier than back in the frozen pizza day. Yeah. Oh, and, uh, I completely forgot about this, but credit to you. We met up right before we pitched uh, our first distributor, uh, Capital Beverage, yeah, uh, at the Muni in Wyzetta. Yeah, remember that? So yeah, yep. you talked a lot about your days at uh, it was Boston Beer, right? Yeah, yeah, Boston Beer, and uh, we took all the advice on how to like make them more fun, bring them food, mm-hmm. uh, basically bribe the hell out of the sales guys to like you. Mm-hmm. Um, we did all that stuff, and it worked. They yep. they brought it in. They were super excited. Um, at the, we spent so much money on burgers and coffee that, that morning. I here's, yeah, here's a little secret. If anybody is wants to work with a distributor, <clears throat> you not only have to convince the head person, but you also have to get the sales team on board. And as much as it probably shouldn't be, a huge part of your success in a brand is if they like you. Mm-hmm. And most people do not take this into factor when they're presenting their product. They show up in a tie and they go, this is my product. Here's the value add in the market. This is going to change. I'm telling you, these distributor sales reps hear these pitches over and over and over and over. So if you come in with something really fun 
and like I would get dressed up for every seasonal beer launch. I would get That's dressed right. up yeah. in a different costume. My my one for winter lager just popped up on my feed as a Facebook memory, and I dressed up as the dude from uh, Game of Thrones. I don't even watch Game of Thrones, but That's I was awesome. like, I have a beard. This makes sense. Winter lager is coming. And it's these types of things that people go, <laughs> God, amazing. they go, this guy's an idiot, but that was fun. And I had fun in a meeting. I like this person. I like this brand. I'll go out and push it. That on top of like, you know, he's getting me food, so I'll do him a solid. <laughs> yeah, Food, Food's the way to sales guys are. The share of mind in a sales rep's uh, brain is so important that if they're thinking about a suggestion, if you can just get them to say, oh, by the way, we have this new product. Are you interested? That's that's as much as you will probably get as a small business is someone mm-hmm. to say, oh, by the way, we have this Revitalite. It's like a hangover cure. Like, would you want it? Maybe do five cases. They have a display. So it's like you gave them the five case display that they can put on the floor. So you've solved the solution of shelf space. You've got a new product and you've made them like you that they'll say the thing as they go out. How did you launch with the distributor after this first meeting goes well and you're buying everybody food and <laughs> uh, then we took another chapter out of the out of the pizza playbook and we hit stores and yeah. we hit a lot of stores. I mean, I spent the summer we launched in April of 2018. Uh, I spent every day that summer like over lunch um, driving around to stores. Uh, so I drive around to you know ten stores every day for lunch, talk to them about the product, uh, get them excited, get them interested. Uh, actually in between. So I talked before about how we have, uh, the wholesale side of the business where we sell to college and pro sports teams, uh, in between stores, I would be calling, uh, nutritionists and, um, and trainers at these different college and professional sports teams, uh, and pitch them on Revitalite, get to the next door, take some notes on the conversation, uh, and do that. Then get home that night, uh, package up samples, send them off to the people, send follow-up emails, and then rinse and repeat every day the entire summer. And that that is key. The biggest mistake I see with small uh, with brands that get a distributor is they go, I've got a distributor now. They have sales reps. I've got people selling my product. No, they're not. They'll connect you they with people. They have the ability to. They have the ability to. They can connect you with the right people. But you, you are the spear of, you're the tip of the spear in the sales effort. And there's so many people that go, oh, I have a distributor. They have a sales rep. That's my sales team now. And you go, you are the smallest brand they have out of hundreds of brands. You're not even getting brought up unless you've given them a very good reason to. One of those reasons can be, oh, I like that guy. I'll bring it up. He seems totally. He, he seems yeah. like he's working hard. But that is another thing. If they see you out pushing sales, one, you're going to obviously get more sales because you're selling. But then they go, oh, okay, this person's actually doing the work. We should support a brand that's supporting our business too. Well, that's a good point too because very easily, I mean, a distributor can also... It, they can be your worst enemy, but they can be your best friend too. I mean, once they saw us out in the market and saw us like getting it into stores where it was turning, they were all about it. Like yeah. our internal brand man. So quick, quick rewind. Cause I want to get to breakthrough beverage who really helped us take the brand off the mm-hmm. outfit in Minnesota. Cause we launched with capital and uh, they had a couple of changes happen internally where we uh, ended up having to find a new partner uh, happened at a time when we had really, really good sales. So it worked out really well. Um, but like this happened two months after we launched <laughs> and we we're like, Oh, what do we do now? Uh, we got introduced to uh, a brand manager at breakthrough beverage who loved the idea. Um, and they ended up bringing the product in and, and they covered the entire state and not just the Metro. So, uh, it was an amazing change to have to have, but like I was saying, so a distributor can be your best friend or your worst enemy. I mean, they, they were amazing. They saw what we were doing in the market and all the sales reps got behind it our brand manager would sit and put incentives for the salespeople on it and just, you know, do that just to help the brand go forward. It didn't really get charged back to us. I mean, he was just 
an amazing guy to work with. And so that outfit really gave us the chance to go from like the start to level a, like the next level, not, not immediately not to the final level, but to the next level where we're really starting to make some progress. Yeah. And that's, they'll get on board if you prove it. And so yeah. I literally just had a distributor cause this will be the first time I say this, but we're launching with market distributing in January. And, awesome. and the number one thing that they say or uh, in the conversation we had is every new brand that comes to them goes, I have the new thing that's going to set the world on fire. And they're like, all right, show me. Well, I mean, it's not doing that yet, but that's why I'm coming to you is because once you get it in stores, it's going to set the world on fire. And they're like, so you have no proof that this is happening. <laughs> You're telling me I now have more work to make your business grow. Yes, they do make money when it sells, but right. you're essentially placing the risk that's not going to work on them, that there's a shelf space that they probably could have placed another product. And so looking at what you did with hindsight is like you went out, sold it, it started selling well. And then once you're out there selling it, getting to the places that it sells well, they go, oh, this is selling well. We should go sell it too. Yeah. Because here's the other thing too about going out and selling yourself is when you're a distributor, especially a distributor rep, and especially when you're incentivized, distributor reps, the second they hear an incentive, they immediately in their head go, okay, I need 10 placements. Here's the 10 places I have a really good relationship with. Yes, they do. And I'll get my placement, get my payment and chill. Because if it's if all I need is 10 placements, I will get 10 placements. I will not get 11 placements. This is generally speaking, you know, a lot of really great reps, this is not applied to. For sure. Yeah. I'm, so I, I'm I talking, get, I yeah, get what you're saying. I'm talking worst case scenario here, yep. but they'll go out and place it in 10 places, not thinking of, is this the best product fit? Do I think it'll move here? Whereas if, when you went out and sold, you're going, what would be the best places for this product to be? Where it is most likely to sell well? And then those numbers get reflected versus putting it out of your control and saying, place it wherever. Then if it didn't move because they placed it in stores where it's not a good product fit, you've got low volume and they're going, <laughs> you were wrong. Your product's not moving versus yeah. you went out there, got it in the right stores. It started flying off the shelves because you did the research of where should we be selling? And then they're like, oh, this product moves. We should go out and move. We should go out and sell this ourselves. Yeah. And it's these little tiny details that people skip over when they're selling that they go, I've heard countless uh, just distributors not doing shit. And you're like, yeah. And my first question is always, what have you done? Right. Sometimes they go, well, I've done a lot. And you go, okay, that distributor is not doing you any favors. It, it happens. It, for there, sure. There's it, definitely, it definitely distributor happens. relationships where it's just they're not doing their half. But most of the time, I think, is the supplier not doing what they need. Right. They haven't gone out and proven themselves, haven't, you know, made those relationships where they actually want to take pride in selling your product, haven't yeah. really gone the route of uh, providing value to them. I mean, yeah. Like you said, there's a lot of people like, oh, I have the next best thing. But if you're not going to provide value to an outfit, they're not going to want to work with you. And so I, I want to end on this. So you're on a, you're in a thousand stores now. And I just see you post on Facebook like last week <laughs> of uh, all these posts of Barstool with Revitalite plastered all over the background of one of their rundown shows. Yeah. How do you go from at that point? So last year, 2019, how many stores are you in? How many states? At the end, uh, at the end of 2019, we were in four stores and about six or seven hundred stores. At that point, four states and six hundred. Did stores. I say four stores? Yeah, yeah. four <laughs> states and six or seven hundred stores. At that point, yeah. Someone, someone out there is like, we went from four to a thousand. No, no, no. Sorry, sorry. So yep, six hundred stores over four states. And yep. you're now at a thousand uh, over how many states? Well, a thousand. We just launched with a in a bunch of new states, but in 
like 12 states right now that just got activated. So um, you're now in 12 plus states, 600 plus points or a thousand plus points of distribution and yep. featured on Barstool. Can you please fill me in on what the hell happened in the last year to go <laughs> in between those two points? So uh, we got lucky enough toward the end of last year to get introduced to um, to Barstool Sports Head of Licensing, who's an awesome guy. Um, and we had a great conversation with him on the brand um, how our target market basically overlaps with their target market one for one. Um, you get the you get the work hard, play hard scene. You got the people who are going to go out on Thursday night and still wake up Friday morning and go kick ass in the office. Um, you've got what we call the unprofessional athletes that go out and play, you know, be heroes on their beer league yeah. softball team. Weekend bring a case of beer. Yeah, the weekend warriors bring a case of beer and a and a revitalite to to make sure you're still standing upright in the ninth inning. Um, but so. Uh, we had an awesome conversation about that. And he's like, all right, so how far are you guys along? And kind of filled him in on the progress. He's like, that's an amazing story. Um, sounds like you've got to just kind of fill in a couple of blanks before we can work together. Uh, and that was really the next challenge that we came across because we had a product that was selling. We had a product that we could roll out to different markets. But it's like, you know, how do we operate now from being like kind of at scale to actually being at scale? Um, so from there, I went and... Um, uh, talked with a good friend of mine who uh, from college uh, who works for a company that owns a roll-up of craft breweries called Canarchy. So um, Canarchy is like a private equity-backed company. They're, they have an amazing brands under their uh, under their portfolio. So they've got Oscar Blues, which is Dale's Pale Ale, one of the first national IPAs out there. Um, they've got Cigar City, which highlights probably one of the most popular national craft IPAs out there. The Highlight. The Highlight. It's just awesome. Um, so I went and met with those guys and just talked to them about Revitalite as a brand, um, talked to them about this opportunity that was on the horizon to potentially work with Barstool Sports. Now, mind you, that wasn't uh, inked yet. That wasn't done. Um, but it was, you know, it was, there was a good opportunity there to, to actually do it. So um, they saw the value in potentially using their network and using their operations, which are already at scale, to, uh, to put Revitalite into their portfolio. Um, and the big advantage with them is now instead of just having me and a couple of guys that are on our team be our sales guys, you know, I've got 120 sales reps across the country uh, in addition to operations. So now we have a bunch of advocates that would be on our side um, to work on Revitalite as well. So uh, next step with them was just give them a couple pallets of product, have them put it through the network and just sell it in some stores and see if it works operationally. You know, can we throw a few pallets on the back of a beer truck to fill orders? Can we do this and that? Um and the market test went really, really well. They put it in some of their uh, some of their better stores just to see if people would, you know, without marketing, go and pick it up off the register or pick it up off a display. Um, thankfully, they did. Uh, we did a couple tests, like up in some ski uh, ski towns in the mountain. Um, they're based out of Longmont, Colorado, so that's right in their backyard. Uh, we had a couple stores in Denver give it a try. So a few different target markets, and uh, the takeaway at the end of it was, yeah, this product can sell on its own. Um, so that kind of killed the risk of them rolling it out. And then if the barstool thing didn't really happen, like we just are stuck with a product to sell. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's like, yeah, I think it'll work regardless. But, you know, the barstool thing would really, uh, really put gas in the fire. So after we kind of got all the logistics and all the, you know, put, put all our ducks in a row with Canarchy, um, we went back to barstool and said, hey, you know, it's, you know, we haven't talked in four or five months, but here's what we've been up to and kind of rolled out this really cool presentation about, you know, Here's now the brand. Here's now our operations. Here's the scale that we put together. Now we're ready to work together with a company of your caliber, which in my opinion, they're one of the biggest you know, marketing machines in the United States today. Um, 
and sort of put this like cool idea together of uh, how we could work together in more of a capacity than just being ad partners. Um, so they got super excited about it. Like they're like, wow, this is a ton of progress and this is really cool. Uh, and ended up signing that deal with them. And um, like I said, we wanted to do more than just advertise with them. So keep your eye out in the future. We'll be announcing a, a pretty cool licensing deal that we're going to be doing uh, over the course of next year. So. so you don't have to say dollar amounts, but in terms of the cost of a partnership like this with a national, international brand like their own, was this a stretch to do or how were you finding the, where, where was the, the money for that type of deal coming from? I mean, it's definitely an investment, but what we talked about on the backside was that um, I don't think there's any, they have a history of doing great things with brands. Yeah. Um, they've done it with like New Amsterdam with that Pink Whitney product that they did. Yeah. Um, they've done it with High Noon. Uh, they're doing it right now with a company called Owens Mixers. So kind of said, if we're going to spend marketing dollars, like let's spend it in a spot that's like as close to a guaranteed result as you can possibly get. So these are marketing um, dollars being generated by sales. Yeah. Okay. Know, definitely. That, that's kind of what I was getting I at. Mean, we're is. definitely making a little bit of an upfront investment, but um, the increase in velocity and the increase in exposure that's super is paying smart. for itself as we grow. Well, it's, it's super smart though, because I worry when I see all because my gut instinct when I saw that I was like oh my gosh I hope that's not too much of a stretch because yeah. I, so many times you see a business tr- they, they think that they can just make a like uh, a, a gamble move or they go this is gonna it's it's gonna be overnight success they want to find the, the marketing move that hey if we spend this x amount of money this will put us through the top and it's money that they don't have to spend so that, right <laughs> or they overstretch themselves so being able to spend something like that obviously you've got a lot of stores generating revenue so it's exciting to see uh I I'm excited to see the launch of the new product and it'll be really interesting to see, but man, what a, what a great simple. And the, the, here's the funny thing is like, it's, it's a s- fairly simple idea. Oh, it's, it's super simple. It's but the amount it's beyond of simple. the yeah. work you've put in and like the back breaking effort to do this all while working another job, by the way, and another beautiful thing about having a co-packer and a distributor is all those things are off the plate, but doing some stuff third party, but for sure. go, going out and selling, seeing an opportunity and getting ahead of everybody. And even when you find partners that you could potentially relax and be like, okay, we have distributors. Hey, we've got some momentum. We're going to do this, but to continue be to, to be the tip of the spear of sales is like, so so many times people wanted how'd you get in these stores i was like i just asked like i had an idea yeah. I, I see what they're selling and i asked and i showed them hey i think this could work here's why and i walked in the store and then i did the same thing so i think a lot of people go oh, it must be the distributor or it must be this and it's like you went to 175 stores over weekends in two months yeah like it's gonna take eventually some effort yeah <laughs> for, for sure. the for the it frozen worth pizza it, but it was some effort but that, I mean, that type of work is just like, if you've got a product that even remotely works, it's going to get out there. Yep. And uh, there's, and unfortunately there's no other way to do it. I mean, that's, that's it. I, it's unfortunate, but in the same way I look at it, it's like, oh, it's kind of fortunate too, because if there was an easier way to do it, people with more resources could do that. Very true. But when you're like, Hey, if I just out, if I just hit more places and pitch this to more people, I will be in more places. It's like, all right. I like simple things that just require a lot of hard work. Cause like, <laughs> like you're definitely down. I'm down to just do a bunch of really hard work and not a lot of people are. Yeah, I'm kind of learning that, that like not a, a lot of people want to get to the distributor, be like, Hey, I've got some decent sales. You have 600 points of distribution in the state. Get me out there. And yeah. they're like, huh? Like, no, we're, we're basically fulfilling orders for you until you 
tell us otherwise for sure but awesome i can't wait to see what happens this will this will be coming out in like late november so even by then we might have some news uh, and we can tag that onto this episode but yeah i think we'll probably have a couple more states opening up and then uh Look for the launch of our uh, of our licensed product with Barstool. Uh, it'll be early next year, so Sick. it's well, going to be pretty exciting. <laughs> thanks for coming in, and I'll end it like I do every other episode and say, "Have a nice 